Why don't you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Lord Jesus, I pray today that you overwhelm us with your love. Overwhelm us with your desire to be in intimate relationship with us. Overwhelm us with your desire to be known completely and known fully and draw us closer to you today. So Lord, as we come today with different backgrounds and things that have happened this week, we pray, Lord, for those who have heavy hearts. Those dealing with difficult situations, we pray today that for the next few minutes, Lord, that you would help us to move past that and to see you in a brand new way, to see from a different perspective. Lord, for those who have had a great week, God, we pray that today would be another springboard toward more victory, more encouragement. Lord, for all of us, we pray today that our eyes would be turned toward you, away from our temporal circumstances and toward the one true eternal God, toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from that love. Thank you for going to the cross to pay the penalty, to be the substitute, to pay the price that we owed. We thank you. Lord, help us now as we open your word to gain a clear understanding of what you have to say this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the opportunity this week as I was preparing for this particular message, I thought of a couple of things, so I went on the internet and I did a search for optical illusions. You ever seen one of those things where you, you sort of look at something, but it's not exactly what it is, and there's something, sort of the 3D image, you almost have to cross your eyes to see it. You ever seen one of those things? I remember when I used to get my hair cut years ago, and <laughs> it's been a while, and you know, the thing about it is, as a side note, you know, not having a whole lot of hair and cutting it yourself saves you a ton of money. Just just throwing it out there, all right? So anyway, when I used to get my hair cut years ago, my barber had on his wall these, these little pictures that didn't really look like anything until you stared at them long enough and sort of crossed your eyes and stood on your head and counted the ten or something, and this image would appear. You ever seen one of those little 3D images? Or maybe you've seen those optical illusions where you know nothing is moving on the page, but Man, it looks like something's moving on that page. And how is that happening? Or maybe you look at something and you see, if you look in one particular area, you see a picture of like a young lady, and then you look in, in another spot and you see a picture of an older lady. It's just those kind of things. Optical illusions are, are there to kind of fool you into thinking that something is there that's not, or that what is there is different than what it appears to be. And in any optical illusion, there's usually something that is sort of behind the scenes, or you have to look harder to find, or, or look at it from a different perspective. And, and so, as I was thinking about this particular message, I, I, I thought that, I, I think that really applies to what we're looking at today. Because in, in life, as you well know, things are not always as they appear. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes you think, man, I'm glad that my circumstances are really not as bad as I think they are. I get some perspective, and I look at somebody else, or I, I just really back up a little bit, and I say, you know what? Okay, it's not, it, it's not as bad as I thought. The sky is not falling. And then there are other times, though, where you look at your circumstances, and you think everything's great, but you don't know what's coming tomorrow. You've been there? And then tomorrow happens. Tomorrow ain't good. That's what I'm talking about. Sometimes things are not the way they appear, and sometimes it's not good. And so... 
This morning, we're going to look at how things are not always as they appear. The last couple of weeks, we've been in a series that we'll complete today called Living Godly in an Ungodly World. And we've been looking at the book of Daniel. And if you've been here with us, I'll, I'll recap just briefly in case you've forgotten. Now, I know that you hang on every single word, and you take these sermons home and you memorize them. So I know that this is completely redundant and useless for most of you, this recap. But for the sake of those who may be joining us for the first time during this series, let me recap for just a second. The book of Daniel opens with the exile of the Israelites to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, has taken from Jerusalem some of the finest young men that he can find. You're probably familiar to an extent with the story. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are four of those guys that he takes and impresses them into the service of this king and this new kingdom. The problem is, is that the Babylonian kingdom is nothing like the way that God says they should live. They do things completely different. They give no reverence or fear to God whatsoever. They don't follow his ways. They don't operate by the law. And so these guys find themselves in a very ungodly place, a place that does not support their beliefs in Yahweh, the one true God, a place that that really wants to brainwash them to believe something different and to live a different way. And so what we've seen so far is these guys found out very quickly, number one, that they lived in a very ungodly world. And unless, as I've said before, you live in a cave somewhere and don't pay attention to our world today, then you know that we live in a very ungodly world. You simply watch the news and and see the evil things that take place. I'm not talking about natural disasters and things like that. I'm talking about folks who will, will somehow condone the evil that they do and justify it according to whatever means they need to. We live in a very ungodly world. Those of you that are in school right now, be it middle school, high school, college, you you are surrounded, for the most part, by people who are very, very ungodly. They may be your friends. You may like them. You may have a good relationship with them. But for the most part, the overwhelming majority of those people are not in any way efforting toward living the way that God wants them to live. If you go to work on a regular basis, I don't have to tell you that the people you work around are probably, for the most part, unless you work in a unique situation, ungodly people. They may be nice people. You may think, well, he's a pretty good guy or she's okay. But for the most part, their hearts are not turned toward God. And certainly those folks that you run into while, hopefully not run into, but you encounter while you're driving, uh, you realize, <laughs> maybe you'll find out real quick if you run into them, you realize that, that ungodliness just permeates our world. You realize that it is interesting to me, and, and granted, I, I don't want to get too carried away here, but if, if from, from right outside the church doors here on Highway 94 to where it meets Highway 80, it was a mile and a half, 1.5, I think maybe 1.6 miles. I drove it one day, and it takes you literally just over a minute going to speed limit, not, not that much. But you know what's interesting is sometimes I watch, and I, I'm, I marvel at just the impatience and the, the aggressiveness that, that permeates our world. As soon as they get past uh, Old Newburgh Road right here, Lots of folks will just pass. They'll go flying 80 miles an hour. I wonder how many of them, most of these folks have to be local. They have to understand you only got a mile and a half. I wonder how many of them realize you, you got a mile and a half, then you have to stop. The person can be right there behind you. I mean, you know, then you got a four lane road. It, it's amazing just in the little things how just that ungodly spirit of aggressiveness, and it's all about me and mine, just permeates our world. 1.5 miles. Just remember that next time you, you think about passing. I'm going to be watching from the front porch of the parsonage, all right? I'll be there. I'll be there. 
I won't call you out next Sunday, but I'll just look at you. But it's, it's, it's obvious and evident that we, just like these guys, we live in a very ungodly place. And so they had to determine very quickly, what do I do? How do I live the way God wants me to live in this place that does not support that? And so we've looked so far at what does it take to live godly in an ungodly world. Two weeks ago, we saw the first element of that is discernment. The, the ability and, and the, the skill of choosing between right and wrong between truth and error, and, and also between truth and half-truth. Those who will justify the sin that they do and not judge rightly between what is what is right and what is wrong will not be able in any way to live godly in an ungodly world. We need discernment. Even in the smallest little things we saw in Daniel chapter 1, how they had discernment to know this is wrong and this is right. And last week we saw that commitment is the second element of living godly in an ungodly world, that it takes faith in God. It takes integrity. It takes commitment to live for the Lord in an ungodly place. And this morning, we're going to look at what I believe is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel. And of all three messages, this one is the most important because this is the underlying foundation of the entire book of Daniel, uh, far more important than Our need for discernment or commitment is our need to understand and to live by the truth that we'll see today. Because without living out what we learned today, the others really don't matter. I want you to look with me. We're going to be in the book of Daniel. If you've got your Bible open, I'd like for you to turn there. I want to show you just briefly several verses here as a point of introduction and getting us started today that I think will help highlight what we're looking at this morning. And so we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1, and we'll sort of work our way, kind of meander through the text a little bit this morning, and wind up at a a point that I want you to see. So Daniel chapter 1, look with me at verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1. It says there that Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. This was the verse that we looked at. This is the discernment. Daniel said, no, no, no. I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I am not going to live like everybody else. I'm going to choose between what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to choose to live God's way. Now, Daniel seems to be the hero of this particular story. Man, what incredible faith he had. Isn't he a great guy? Look how godly he is. But look at verse 9, and this is the key to this particular passage. Who had granted? God had granted Daniel favor and compassion to the chief official. It doesn't say that because Daniel was such an incredible politician and could just work every single conversation just right, everybody loved him, that, you know what, the chief official said, hey, man, you're so awesome. We just love having you around. You are the greatest person we've ever known here in Babylon. Even though you're an Israelite, we love you anyway. Hey, you know what, yeah, because of all that, yeah, go ahead. You you do what you want. The exact opposite is true. It says God had granted Daniel favor. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 17 of the same chapter. And this is after these four guys had said, we're not going to defile ourselves. Please give us something different to eat. Test us for a while and see if we're not in better shape, better looking, have have keener minds and understanding than the other guys. And then look at verse 17. After that episode is over, what does it say? God gave these four men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. 
Who was in charge there? God. Was it anything they did on their own? No, their simple obedience revealed the fact that God himself was in charge. Then look at chapter 2. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, here has a dream. The first nine verses, he, he, he kind of freaks out. He doesn't know what's going on. He said this dream that disturbs him, and he wants somebody to interpret it. And in verse 10, the Chaldeans, his wise men, answered the king. They said, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any divin or priest, medium or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, it says, because there's nobody that can interpret his dream, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And they, they gave the wrong answer. Wrong answer. There you go. They, they should have just made something up on the spot. King, I think it means this. They could have saved their lives. Anyway, the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed. And they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute him. Now, Daniel and his friends, of course, were given wisdom and all these, these different things. Daniel, the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And so here he is, about ready to be executed, doesn't even know it, doesn't know what's going on. And as a result, his life is in danger, and he has no idea. But look at his response in verse 14. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion, there's his discernment again, to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why, why is the decree from the king so harsh? And Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king his interpretation. The king, then Daniel, verse 17, went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. Now look at verse 26. The king said, and this is after they prayed and after they'd gotten a word from God, the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had in this interpretation? So he's asking, can you do this? I love Daniel's answer. Verse 27, Daniel answered the king, no wise man, wise man, medium, diviner, priest, or astrologer is able to make known to the king the mystery he's asking about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came to your mind as you lay in your bed were these. And he says, no, 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 King, you don't get it. You don't understand where my wisdom comes from. You don't understand who's really behind the scenes in control of all this. He says, it's not me, but there's a God in heaven who knows exactly what's going on. There's a God in heaven who, in fact, put that dream in your mind. Let me tell you, he says, what's going to happen. And then he made that interpretation known to the king. Look at Daniel chapter 3. Again, this is the underlying theme. We're going to land at this point in just a second. The underlying theme of the entire book of Daniel. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Of course, if you know chapter 3, this is where Nebuchadnezzar sets up his gold statue and all the music's supposed to play. Everybody's supposed to bow down and the king will be happy because he's being worshipped. Verse 15, you see some resistance here from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you're ready, the king is telling them, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And probably his biggest mistake is this. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? How about that? Interesting that he would say, 
There's no one, not any human nor any God at all, can rescue you from my power. He refused to recognize who really was in charge. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, at the end of the story, finally figures out that, wait a minute, uh, these guys were walking around in the furnace, and there's not three of them. There are four, and one of them sort of looks like one of the sons of the gods. Wait a minute, there's something different. The presence of God was with them in the furnace there in verses 21 to 25. They were not burned. They were not scorched in any way. God was in control. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, and he freaks out again. As you can well imagine, he is a little bit disturbed by what's going on. Daniel tells him, as a result of having this dream, here's what's going to happen, king, if you don't acknowledge God as really being in charge. If you keep putting yourself up, king, as the one who is to be followed, as the one who's really in charge, let me tell you what's going to happen. And he tells him, here it is in verse 25 of chapter 4. He says to the king, Daniel speaking, you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High, talking about God, is ruler over the kingdom of man, and he gives it to anyone he wants. And so he gives him the idea here of what's going to happen. He tells him, you're going to be driven away from people. You're going to have to eat with the wild animals. As for the command to leave the tree stump of the tree of your kingdom, will be restored, he says, to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, my advice, and my advice seem good to the king, Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. And it's interesting to follow this. He gets a word from God. Look, King, you're not in charge. You need to acknowledge who really is. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this the, not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. He gives it to anyone he wants. At that moment, the sentence against Nebuchadnezzar was executed. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws, verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all, in, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He praises the Lord, finally recognizing there who is in charge. Now look at Daniel chapter 5. We continue this theme. King Belshazzar held a great feast, verse 1, for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Whose temple was that? Temple in Jerusalem. God's temple. Okay? Yahweh, God's temple. So that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. Do you understand what's going on? This is spitting in God's face. You don't do this. You don't take the stuff from the temple and use it 
for your party. It's not the way you go. It says, so they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, wood, and iron and stone. The next few verses highlight the handwriting on the wall. You ever heard that old phrase? Well, there's the handwriting on the wall. This guy saw it firsthand. And it says, this is the, the moment of greatest fear probably found in the whole Bible, that he was pale and his, and his knees shook so that they hit together. He's just, he's scared to death. The king doesn't know what's going on. There's the fingers of something, some man writing on the wall. And he writes an inscription that basically tells the doom of the king. And it's interesting that that very night, that king died. He spit in God's face. He assumed he was in charge. And the king was destroyed. Daniel chapter 6, we looked at last week, is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Verse 22, Daniel experiences this theme again. He says, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. They haven't hurt me, for I was found innocent before him. Also, I've committed, I've not committed a crime against you, the king. Daniel found the presence of God. God was ultimately in charge there in the lion's den. And ultimately, the king recognizes that the Lord is in charge. Now, if you read from this point on, you go to chapter 7 and read through chapter 12, you're going to find a lot of prophecy, some stuff that may sort of cause you to scratch your head just a little bit and wonder, what in the world is Daniel talking about? Without getting into all of that and trying to flesh all of that out, some of it we understand, some of it has already come true, and some of it remains to be seen, understand that the, the last few chapters here simply highlight the truth that we'll see here in just a minute. Daniel gives visions of what God's going to do in the future. He tells of the coming Messiah and the eventual destruction of everything that's evil and that God will reign for all eternity over the world. Now, why do we look at all that stuff? Why on earth would we sit there and flip through and when I try to read you a few verses, why would we look at all that? It's because, as I mentioned earlier, that the most important theme in the book of Daniel may not be the most obvious. And it may not be seen as clearly as you'd like if you just focus on those famous stories, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall. But it's, it's ultimately most important. Here is that necessary, but I believe often, elusive perspective that we must have. If you want to live godly in an ungodly world, the most important thing you've got to have is perspective. And here it is. Here's the perspective. You'll see on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. It's this. It's very simple. God is in control. God is in control, and He is good. God is in control, and He is good. You think about those passages we just read. Every one of those points to the fact that it wasn't a human or a king or anybody like that that was in charge. It was God in control, God orchestrating the circumstances, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes directly and obviously, and you can't miss Him kind of involvement in the story. There's no one who reads this story. I was speaking with someone earlier just about the entire Old Testament, and Daniel in particular. You cannot read the Old Testament. You cannot read this book of Daniel and have any doubt whatsoever about who really is in charge, about who really is in control. A lot of times we fear those who are in power, those who have control, but the great truth that we've seen over and over, both in this book and throughout the entire Scripture, is that not only is God in control, but He's good. He is good. And He loves each one of us. 
And that's this necessary perspective that we must have. And it's because of that truth, by implication this is true, because of that truth, he can be trusted. Because he is in control, because he is good, as a result, he can be trusted. These guys found that out. There's some space there on your bullets, and I want you to write down just a few words that you won't find on the screen, so maybe write these words down. Let me tell you the results these guys experienced. When they trusted God, when they understood God is in control, when they understood He is good, and as a result, He can be trusted, here's what they experienced. They experienced peace. Just write the word down, peace. Those guys were bound. They couldn't move. Tossed in the fiery furnace. Now, the Scripture doesn't record their emotions at that time, but what it leaves out is any fight that they put up. They had complete peace going into that fire. Daniel in the lion's den, there he is, tossed in there. And there's no hint of any struggle, any battle, any fight between Daniel and these guards. Peace in the midst of the furnace. Peace in the midst of the lion's den. They also had contentment. They had contentment. Back in Daniel chapter 1, we see that, you know what, they could have pursued this this new position, this new influence with the king by just doing what everybody else did. They were content to be wherever God wanted them to be, whenever he wanted them to be there. They weren't trying to impress anyone. They're not in pursuit of any particular position. They knew that their fate rested in the hands of a sovereign, loving God. They were content with whatever he brought them, contentment. Confidence was another thing they experienced. Peace, contentment, confidence. What do they say in chapter 1 when, when, the, when, the, when the official says, look, I'm not sure that this is the best idea to give you this. They say, test us. They had confidence. They knew life God's way. He's going to come through for them. He'll never leave them or forsake them. They knew, written in the book of Joshua, they had confidence that God would be faithful. And he could be trusted when they did life God's way. That he would support them. They also, as a result of confidence, had boldness. That even if moment we looked at last week and Chapter 3, verse 18, they say, King, we don't need to give you an answer. We believe our God can save us. But even if he does not, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. They had boldness before the king. And only trust in a sovereign, loving God produces that kind of boldness. Wonder why you're not more bold about your faith in Jesus? Probably because you don't trust God enough. Why is it that sometimes maybe I back down from a conversation that involves God? Well, because I don't trust God enough to say, you know what, God, I trust you so I can be bold because I stand on your truth. These guys were bold. They didn't care. Even if they were destroyed, they were still not going to cave in. They would proclaim God's truth. Not only that, they had purpose. They had purpose. They were living for something that was bigger than themselves. It's unfortunate in our world today. And I'm not sure where it began. Not sure it's a particular age group. Some studies would tell you that it began with the baby boomers and it's trickled down, or maybe not trickled down, but rushed down from there. And I see it particularly in my generation and younger. And our world is about one person and one person only, and that's me. And that's I and myself and what I am about. And it's unfortunate that that purpose is what we live for. Maybe that hits you right between the eyes today because you realize, you know what, I really wouldn't admit that to a lot of people, but when I look and evaluate my life, my purpose is about me. What I can get, how much more of it I can get, and what's going to happen and how I can take care of myself and so on, or what pleases me and what, what helps me right now, my purpose is for me. And we 
these guys realized that because God is in control, their purpose is not about me. Their purpose was bigger than themselves. They didn't live for their own desires, their own comfort, their own pleasures. Their purpose was to please and to honor God in everything they did. It was rare in that day, and I'm telling you, it's maybe even rarer today. That folks will live for a purpose beyond themselves. They also had humility. What did Daniel say when the king asked him, can you interpret this? What did he say? No, no, no. You got it wrong. You don't understand where my giftings come from. It comes from God alone. They had humility. They knew who was really in control, who really deserved the credit for the good things in their lives. They also had victory. They came out of the furnace. They came out of the lion's den, untouched, unburned. They also had hope. The last part of Daniel, chapter 7 through, through 12, talks about that despite the exile, they could look forward to what God was going to do. They had hope. Isn't it often that, that it happens that when we get into a tough situation, that all we can see is that tough situation right in front of us, and we have no perspective, therefore we have no hope, and discouragement just beats us down over and over and over and over again? I've told you before that the worst part about preaching every Sunday is that I have to study all week long. And I told Nancy what I was preaching on. We talk about that. And her response was, you know, you're kind of preaching yourself this morning, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, that's what I do every Sunday morning. I kind of preach to myself. And I, I tell you what, the Lord has hit me hard this week. The idea of perspective. Because it's easy to have no hope in this world when you think that all that exists and all that, that, it, that we are to be about is just this world, just today, just what we see now. Daniel, the, the, the book there in the, in the last few chapters, there's this hope beyond what's going on right now, beyond this ungodly world. And so because he is in control and he is good, he can be trusted. And you experience all those things when you truly trust God because he is in control. And because he is good, he brings those things. Which brings me to the most important and fundamental question that you must answer. And you will answer it one way or another. The question is simple, and it's this. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? Oh, wow, Pastor. Well, that's profound. Wow, incredible. I came this morning for that. Let me tell you what, that is the most important and the most fundamental question you will ever answer. Do you trust God? Why is it so fundamental? Why? Because life is lived on the basis of what or whom you trust. Life is lived on the basis of what or whom you trust. It affects everything about you. It controls your thoughts, your attitudes, your pursuits, your actions, your reactions, your morality, your relationships, your choices, your lifestyle. The way you raise your family, what you do with your money, it, it affects everything. You're going to walk out those doors in a few minutes, and you're going to live your life based upon what or whom you trust. You cannot deny that that's true. Every thought that leads to a decision is based upon what or whom you trust. Everything. The way that you will handle your money, the way you'll raise your family, the way that you'll live in your job or in your school is based upon your trust. What or whom do you trust? Do you trust yourself? 
sort of your gut feeling, just, well, this kind of feels like this is what I ought to do. My, my instincts, my intuition. I sort of trust my heart. I follow my heart. Do you trust that? What about your friends? Do you trust the advice that your friends give you to go to them when you got a, a, a decision to make? And okay, well, this person says this and this person says this. Well, this seems like this probably a little bit better, so maybe I'll do that. Do you trust what you see? What your circumstances tell you? Do you trust that? Or do you trust God and His Word? The Bible makes it very clear. You're either trusting God and His Word or you're trusting something else. Those are your two choices. That's it. And so if you're not trusting God and His Word, then you're trusting something besides God and His Word. Just make it very plain. It's not, not real difficult to understand. And if you're trusting anything else besides God and His Word, then you're not trusting God and His Word. You see how it works? Not simple. I don't mean to talk down to you in any way. That's not my point. We just need to understand how simple it really is. Do I trust God? Do I trust Him to meet my needs in a difficult economy? When I've lost my job, when things aren't going quite as well as I hoped, when business slows down, when times get a little bit tight, do I trust him? Do I trust him to take him at his word when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that I can trust. And in the midst of my difficult circumstances, God is there. Do I trust him? Do I trust him when I can't see what he's doing? You been there? God just doesn't make any sense. Or in fact, this is stupid. There's no way, God, that this could be part of your plan. What on earth are you doing? God, this is a total curveball, man. I've been living for you the best I can, and what on earth just happened? Been there, you had that conversation with God? The God's big enough to handle it, by the way, if you, if, you, if you had that conversation with God. I tell you, the fact that I'm standing here today and not dead proves that God is gracious. Because I've had those conversations with God. God, what, what are you doing? I don't even... There's no way, God, that you can be involved in this. This doesn't make any sense. But when God is silent for months, years at a time, seemingly in your life, you trust Him. You trust Him beyond what you can receive from Him. You know, a lot of people that, well, I'll trust God as long as this happens, as long as He gives me, or as long as He provides, or as long as He does this or that. Do you trust Him beyond? what you receive from Him? Do you trust Him with your future? Do you trust Him with your finances, your choices? And maybe most importantly, do you trust Him when, like these guys in the furnace and Daniel in the lion's den, do you trust Him when you're left for dead? You feel like you've been left for dead before in life? What's the point in putting one foot down in front of the other yet again today because it really doesn't matter? You know what? God's left me. He's forgotten about me. Nobody really cares. Nobody understands my situation. In fact, most of the people have sort of written me off and they've moved past me. Maybe you feel like you've been bound up and tied and yet the last thing to do is just throw me into the furnace. Who cares? Or just toss me in the lion's den because I may as well be eaten by lions because life sure couldn't get any worse. Just get it over with. You trust God when you've been left for dead. There's one little caveat that's a vital caveat to this particular truth that it's fundamental that we trust God. And it's this. And we need to understand this today. It's your trust, my trust or distrust of God does not change reality. We live in a very relativistic world. And 
if Bruce and I here are having a conversation, and he says, well, I really believe that God is in charge. And I say, well, I'm not so sure. In today's world, you know what the politically correct thing is to do? It's for me to say, well, Bruce, hey, that's great if you believe that. Man, I hope you're really sincere. For him to say, well, you know, okay, I understand it. Listen, I know you're sincere about that, so I guess our, our views are equal. My trust or distrust of God doesn't change reality. He is still in control. Period. You can believe it or not believe it. One day you're going to experience it either here on earth or in the life to come. You will experience that ultimately God is in control. You know what the scripture says? Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ, not as a good guy, not as a great prophet, uh, a really helpful teacher, but is what? Lord. In charge. In control. So my trust or distrust of God doesn't change reality. It doesn't mean he's more in control or less in control just because I believe it or don't believe it. The only thing that my trust or distrust of God changes is how much of God and his blessings I'll experience. That's it. So it doesn't change the fact that God is still in control, that he is still good, that he can be trusted, that he must be trusted. It only changes how much of all that I experience. How how much of the peace, how much of the contentment, how much of the confidence and boldness and hope and perseverance and endurance, how much of that I experience is based upon how much I trust God, not because God is or is not in control. That, that can't be changed. And so because God is in control and because he is good, through trusting him, I can relax. I don't have to orchestrate all my circumstances anymore. I don't have to freak out when things don't go my way. I can be content regardless of my current circumstances. Because he is good and can be trusted, I have purpose beyond myself. I can and I must stand and proclaim the truth. Because he is good and he is in control, I know that change is possible, both in me and those around me in our world today. I can respond properly to the authorities in my life. Because God is in control. Not my boss, not my teachers. They're simply tools in God's hands. You know that God says that he holds the hearts of the rulers in his hands and he turns them whichever way he wants to. The President of the United States may be the most powerful person in our world today, but his power pales, pales. I believe God laughs at the power we think we may have here on earth. Any president who's ever been there, any world leader who's ever raised themselves up and said, you know what? pretty powerful. I believe God just says, you have no idea. So I can respond properly to those authorities. That boss that's a jerk. He wouldn't say that in church, of course, but you know, that boss that's a jerk that you just don't really like, respond properly because God is in control. I don't have to be fearful or jealous of ungodly people, what they get, what they achieve. Instead, I feel compassion and pity. Them. I can leave with confidence. I know I can't fail if I'm faithful and obedient to God, no matter what circumstances or results tell me. I can't take credit. This is the humility part. I can't take credit for any of the gifts, wisdom, strengths, successes I have. Why? Because God is in control. He is the one who gives me those. I know that He doesn't waste any experience, good or bad, that I have. That's hard to see sometimes. Some of you are in situations right now and you just think, what? could this possibly add to my life? It's the worst season I've ever experienced. What what is going on? 
But when you know God is in control, when you know He is good, you can trust that He never wastes an experience you have. I know He's with me even when I'm left for dead. I know I'm victorious. I know that I have hope for the future. Because God is good, because He is in control, He can be trusted, I can live godly in this ungodly world. The truth is, as we've looked at, living godly in an ungodly world requires that you have this perspective. That God is in control and that He is good. On the screen, there's one last thing I want you to write down. I know you put your papers away, put them on your backpack, the bell's about to ring, you're ready to go home. But get your bullets and back out or a piece of paper somewhere. And just write this down, all right? There, there are some times that are going to be listed here on, on the screen. Now just, just write them down. 623, 622, 621, 619, 616. So write, write those down. And if you need to know, is it a.m. or p.m.? That, that's a.m. For some of you, there, there is a 616 a.m. I don't see it very often. But it's there. Those times represent, in order, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of this coming week. And at what time the sun will rise. I heard a friend say this week, as I said, I'm preaching to myself this morning, that evidence of the ingenious nature of God is the sunrise. Every morning it comes up. Every morning it declares God is in control. Who made the sun come up? had nothing to do with it. God did. And every morning it declares God is good because that sun rises not only on those people who live for God, but on those people who hate God. He's good. No matter what. Every morning the sun's going to come up this week and it's going to declare in its subtle way, in its constant reminder, God is in control and He is good. And so here's what I want you to do this week. One time. Maybe you do it every day. One time. You pick one of those times. And you get yourself out of bed. And you look over this way. And you watch the sunrise. And you pray while you do it. And you say a simple prayer. God, you are in control. And God, you are good. And God, I trust you today. And you watch that sunrise and you just sit in awe of God's power and his sovereignty. And his goodness. And you remember, oh, how he loves you and me. That the God who created that sunrise that seems so powerful and so far away sometimes came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ and he hung on a cross to display his control over sin and evil and to display his love and his goodness. Be reminded of that this week. And then when life happens... After that cool sunrise you sit through thinking how mystical and spiritual you are, you go to work and life happens. When something this week happens, when you're still dealing with that situation you walked in with this morning, not as some sort of cheesy, useless activity, but you say to God, Lord, you are in control. Lord, you are good. God, I trust you. Maybe, just maybe, you start to believe it. 
Maybe, just maybe, you'll live out the implications of that. You begin each day with that simple prayer. You are in control. You are good. I trust you. And when life throws you curveballs, God, you are in control. You are good. I trust you. In whatever situation you'll find yourself this week, this is the most fundamental and important question you'll ever answer. Do you trust God? Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12 points to the ultimate coming of the Messiah and God's judgment on sin. He will one day, as he has consistently done throughout the scriptures in our lives, he will one day show himself and display himself for all to see, to be in absolute control, the one that we all must answer to, the one whose wrath will be poured out on sin, the one who, yes, even though he loves, will punish those who have not placed their faith in him and in him alone, Jesus Christ, for salvation. So do you trust him? Will you receive his free gift of salvation by placing your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation? Some of you this morning have made that decision, many of you, and you say, absolutely, I trust him for salvation. There may be someone here today, though, who says, you know what? I really haven't done that. I haven't asked the Lord to come and be in charge of my life, recognized his control and his love and his goodness, and I need to do that this morning. God is in control. That's the most important thing from the book of Daniel. You can live with discernment. You can be the most committed person in the world. But when life happens, and you need to understand, when life happens, God is in control. He is good. And he can be trusted. So watch the sunrise this week. And tell God how good he is. And recognize his control. And trust him by your words by your actions, and experience peace and contentment and hope and victory. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for the sun coming up this morning. Lord, we confess to you our agreement that you are in control. Lord, as we think about those circumstances now that would make us think something different, we give you those even now. Lord, you are in control of all of that. And Lord, we thank you that not only are you in control, but equally so, you are good. And your love, the Bible says, endures forever. You are in control. You are good. And we know you can be trusted. So this morning, Lord, we trust you. Lord, as we walk out these doors, we know that our lives will be governed by what or whom we trust. So, Lord, may we trust you, not just in these closing moments, but as we leave and tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to see what you're doing, to have that perspective. Remind us, Lord, of your goodness and your control. Thank you that nothing is out of your hands, that you still have the whole world in your hands. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.